following presentation is a Bernanke and Krauss production. It's showtime, folks. The city of Albuquerque, in the heart of New Mexico and the land of enchantment, lies a community home to a cinematic universe that's full of drama and suspense. In recent years, the once peaceful community has seen a surge in illegal activity, thanks to the work of a shady lawyer in the making. A chemistry teacher with a newfound identity and the heart of a cartel seeping through the underbelly of the city. It is in this community where we have come to watch the character study of Better Call Saul unfold. With the gift to gab and a smile you can't forget, the evolution of James McGill to the beloved persona of Saul Goodman, attorney at law, has captured the interest of millions of fans across the world, making us hold our breath in suspense over the course of this perilous path. This is the story of not just one, but several characters, each on their own morally compelling journey. This character study is just one of the reasons we enjoy the cinematic world Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould have created, and we hope you do too. I'm Joseph Bernanke. And I'm Alex Krauss. And this is The Truth Is How You Look At It, a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us on the second episode of The Truth Is How You Look At It, a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Bernanke, and I'm joined by a good friend of mine. Alex Krauss. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me again tonight, Alex. Uh, He is my co-host for this series that we've started up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We're recording on a much more mild January evening, unlike last week. And uh, this is a great episode. This is a follow-up to the previous episode uno it is a part two if you'd call it of what happened um to begin the series we're going to be doing a episode recap doing some character analysis having a few laughs along the way and we hope you enjoy this show so episode two is called mijo it is spanish for my son it debuted february 9th 2015 and it's interesting to note that the first two episodes of the series were actually shown on back-to-back nights on amc This is the first appearance of Nacho Varga, played by Michael Mando, a new series regular. He played a great role in the video game Far Cry 3 as Voss. He was one of the main villains. Uh, And honestly, the more you watch Better Call Saul, you kind of see some similar character traits between the two characters, in my opinion at least. Uh, We have guest appearances by Jesus Payan as Gonzo and Cesar Garcia as Nodos, two prominent members of Tuco Salamanca's crew in Breaking Bad, the original series. There's an interesting note I found. The actress that plays Tuco's grandmother in the first episodes, Abuelita is how you say that in Spanish. It's her character. Miriam Colon, uh, she was a prominent Puerto Rican actress. She played guest roles in dozens of TV shows throughout her career. Uh, And in the 50s and 60s, she appeared in many westerns, including Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and Have Gun, Will Travel. In 1983, she played the mother of Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana, in Scarface, which is a pretty damn famous movie. And she was um, pretty well known in Puerto Rico, as I had mentioned. And she attended the Lee Strasberg Actors Studio in New York City, which is a very uh, prestigious school for acting. This episode was written by Peter Gould, directed by Michelle McLaren. She directed 11 episodes of Breaking Bad, won two primetime Emmys for that. She's Canadian, a Canadian director who originally worked with Vince Gilligan on the final season of The X-Files. That's how they first met, and then they were able to work with each other on these two series that we cover. So Alex, I'm going to let you take away the first scene, tell us what happened, and let's break this down. So the scene starts with Tuco rather peacefully cutting up some veggies, making some salsa, when his grandmother comes in with the two con artists hobbling in behind, immediately yelling and stirring up a scene. She's quite upset, and rather hilariously, one of them asks if the grandson uh, speaks English as well, which Tuco introduces himself, and he Tuco consoles his grandmother during the whole uh, spiel during which she's called a biznatch, which elicits one of the few reactions from Tuco. He helps his grandmother across the room while they continue to make a scene, and recommends she goes upstairs and turns up the volume for her show. 
He displays some affection to her, but is almost rather completely disinterested in the guys that are stirring up the scene. He seems rather cold and calm to them. Finally, when his grandmother goes upstairs, he finally talks to the guys, and they raise the issue of the cops, during which he elicits another reaction from him. Cops. Yeah. Uh, but after they reveal that they have not yet, in fact, the cops, he goes back to his rather cold demeanor. Uh, stating he will you know, take care of it. He first reaches for the purse and then grabs down the uh, walker and smacks them both in the face. Ending our opening scene as we cut to the intro to Better Call Saul. So being a person that watched Better Call Saul first, while he's quite a rather considerate grandson seen at first and quite cold to everyone else, what was your... Uh, reaction when you first saw him knock both of them out I was shocked I'm not gonna lie Alex it I obviously knew that this was a scam but as I mentioned in the premiere of our podcast I hadn't seen Breaking Bad first Better Call Saul was the first series I watched it is still on TV on AMC um, so I was I was really surprised uh, he kind of looked like he was already a danger dangerous character and he knocks them out, and as someone who was already rooting for Jimmy from the beginning, I thought, okay, what exactly is he walking into here? He's walking into a hell of a lot of danger. Um, and, it, of course, it left me wanting to see more, as we uh, we will shortly here. For sure. Breaking Bad viewers, I'm sure, are aware a little bit of his character more, so they're a bit well prepared for both reactions with Jimmy in the previous episode and with uh, the two con artists here. But... Did you have any thoughts about this scene? How, how do you think Tuco's character handled this, this situation at home? So he seems really calm for the situation when they first burst in, screaming about an injured leg. The, his first thoughts is to console his mother and, you know, uh, stop her from being upset, saying he'll take care of it, guiding her upstairs. Uh, if I was in that situation, to say the least, I don't know if I would be as calm, but I would for sure decipher that it was a con as well as soon as they start talking about the money you could see it on the actor's face uh, playing Tuco as soon as they brought up the uh, concept of money he immediately saw through what the hell was going on and I honestly even if I was in a panic state at that moment I probably would too so as we move into the second scene of this episode of course, Tuco's abuelita is watching her novellas upstairs, Spanish uh, daytime programming. She goes to check on her grandson downstairs who is cleaning a red stain on the carpet. Tuco ensures her that everything is okay, no te preocupes, and that the men have gone. Of course, the stain is blood, which is not good to clean out of a carpet. Um, Tuco phones Gonzo and tells him to bring over Nodos and Nacho's van. This is the first mention of Nacho's character. And several minutes later, we've now caught up to the end of the first episode, where Jimmy is frantically knocking at the door. Tuco goes to the top of the kitchen cabinet and grabs a gun. Tuco frisks him as Jimmy is told to sit down. Now, there's a great exchange between the three characters in this scene as Tuco's grandma comes down to check on the salsa spill. Tuco is panicking that his grandma will see the gun he is hiding behind his back and Jimmy looks down in the corner of his eye and he figures out that's not salsa that's blood on the floor uh, if you've ever had one of those older relatives in your family that's determined to know what's going on at all times and is determined to get things fixed or done as quick as possible that's Tuco's abuelita rather hilariously she is quite determined to come down and help with the salsa mess uh, and really want some baking soda before it dries to get it out for sure. But he, being the great-grandson that Tuco is, he's very adamant that she relaxes upstairs and does not uh, bother the nice salesman downstairs. And Tuco says that Jimmy is un vendedor, a salesman. And uh, again, just go back upstairs. He's got things under control. Tuco, you can see in his facial expression, he's getting frustrated by these interruptions from his grandma, it almost seems like, which kind of makes the show a little bit comedic there. He says he'll get the club soda that she's insisting on uh, to help clean the mess, and she goes back upstairs. Then, now with a great close-up shot of the gun, Tuco says one word to Jimmy, 
talk. Mm. I think it's quite more intimidating seeing that the gun is fully loaded in all of its barrels, ready to fire. That's a good point. So Jimmy's trying to explain what happened in the hit and run and how things have gone wrong. And you can see, he's frantically trying to show that the two brothers were idiots for what they did. He was also a part of, which we have to remember, and hopes that they're not dead. Tuco only answers with, Wow, you've got a mouth on you. Which is a terrifyingly good delivery from Raymond Cruz's portrayal Rather of that character. Rather hilariously, Jimmy says, thank you, <laughs> not knowing what to say. So Tuco leads Jimmy to the garage where the two brothers have been hogtied and gagged, and one of the brothers is stupid enough to quickly lay all the blame on Jimmy. Tuco, angered by the situation, points the gun at Jimmy and demands why they're after two grand from his family. And the brother explains it was a designed hit and run, and the scene fades to black as Tuco still has the gun pointed closely on Jimmy as the music intensifies. I wonder if it relates to the next scene, but Tuco was more than willing to let them all go prior to the revelation that Jimmy is the mastermind behind the scam. And I wonder if it ties in partly to the respect that he showed Tuco when his grandmother came down from upstairs. How do you think Jimmy handled this scene in Tuco's living room? Well, Tuco said it quite adequately, quite the mouth on you, Jimmy. And it just goes to show his character of being quite the charismatic salesman to a degree and lawyer that he is. And talks himself out of the danger. Almost. If only it wasn't for those idiots, as he said. And then kind of leading into that, what have you found, what was your reaction to one of the brothers quickly speaking against Jimmy in the garage? Like, Would they not realize at this point that Tuco's a pretty dangerous man? I think I could speak for most people viewing, but uh, just a oh, moronic move right there. Like, they're scot-free. He was about to cut them out loose. And they ended up saying the wrong thing. The crazy old biznatch you ran over my brother. Doctors ain't cheap, yo. It's gonna cost either you or her. Somebody's gotta pay. You want money? What are the cops gonna say? Cops, they coming. You <clears throat> called her Biznatch? I, yeah, whatever, man, please hurry it up. I'm hurting here. As we move into the third scene, this is in a blistering hot desert sun, Jimmy along with the two skateboarders have all been tied up and thrown to the ground to begin this harrowing situation. I just wanted to say it's rather great shot of them zoomed out just to show how almost insignificant they are in the vast expanse and displaying the threat that if they were to die out in the middle of the desert, no one would find them. Or more importantly, miss them, honestly. And that is the brilliance of, we can talk about it later in this discussion, but throughout Breaking Bad, throughout Better Call Saul, many of the most important situations in both series happen out in the desert. Whether it's Walt and Jesse cooking in the RV, whether it's people pointing guns at each other, this is gunpoint, if this is a deal over money. Or just having Gus and Walter stand off. So that's a very good point. Um, I love the choice in camera here. You see this shot of Tuco running towards Jimmy's face from his point of view. It makes it seem like Jimmy's head is the camera as it tilts upward. I don't know if that kind of struck a chord with you. but um, And Tuco immediately starts asking Jimmy who he is. Um, as uh, Nodo's Gonzo and our new character Nacho watch in the background intensely. 
The camera work definitely added to the suddenness, that's for sure. So Jimmy explains this is all a misunderstanding as he states again, this scam was done to hurt the Kettlemans. We know a little bit about the Kettlemans from before where they're Betsy and Craig, where Craig has allegedly embezzled $1.6 million from the treasury uh, where he works. So he's trying to explain this other story as Tuco motions for Nacho to go retrieve a toolbox from the van. Jimmy, pleading for his life, insists he is a lawyer as Tuco takes a pair of pliers and clamps down on his finger. Jimmy, not knowing what else he can say, says he's Agent Jeffrey Steele of the FBI. Of course this is made up. And Jimmy is saying that he's undercover. I love the line that Jimmy has. Go look in my wallet! In that pocket right there! Like, you could just hear the franticness. He's like He really does not want his finger cut off, <laughs> as I'm sure most people wouldn't. And he's it's scary for him. I, it is, and the actor of uh, Tuco, he does such a brilliant job in some of his deliveries, such as the phrase, I smell pork. It, I don't know why the writers chose to use that line. I found it hilarious after it well, smells a pig, you know. There's a reference to Javelina later, so obviously Tuco's background uh, coming from Mexico here. Um, maybe he's a bit paranoid. So... Tuco and Nacho start conversing here, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Jimmy. So Nacho approaches Jimmy and asks him to tell them what business they are a part of. Jimmy clearly can't. He says they're peddling drugs, but he can't identify them. He comes up with some kind of code in the bureau, what they're calling it, the task force. Um, and he calls uh, Tuco basically Operation Kingpin. Tuco has this great line, That makes me the king! So he gets really excited about it. Kind of, you know, we'll talk about Tuco's personality later. But um, so he doesn't know them. And Nacho has a good line saying, the next words out of your mouth better be the truth. Jimmy again says that he's a lawyer. Nacho is chatting with Tuco. And Tuco's really not sure what to believe at this point. Nacho insists to let them go. He tries talking some sense into Tuco, which we'll see later on in the series. And Jimmy is released from his binds. But, just as he is about to walk away from the scene, realizes in his conscience he has to do something to save the skateboarders' lives. There's a couple of things to break down here. Uh, first, which is kind of hilarious, the special agent Jeffrey Steele may be a reference to the country singer. I'm not quite sure, but if that's the first thing that came to his mind. He is quite the cowboy, as uh, one of his songs goes. Uh, Tuco eats up all of the things that Jimmy says. He believes everything that he says that he's an FBI agent. Whereas Nacho, in my opinion, far too clever, is completely unimpressed. And with some light probing, discerns the truth. Uh, Operation Kingslayer was a great phrase. Listening to the uh, nice quote from Tuco there. And Nacho saying the two flequitos. It seems rather unimpressed with the uh, two con artists. But he is definitely concerned, like he said, killing a lawyer is bad for business. Nacho, you can sort of see, he is a bit cold, but he has a smart head on him, and almost, well, more importantly for Jimmy's sake, he is more merciful, honestly. He seemed a bit cold when he came up to Jimmy asking the next words, better be the truth, but it was for his own sake, because he didn't know that Tuco was going to have his head if he was an FBI agent. You could tell he's acting more rationally and he's really trying to think things through. And, and as to your point, of course, you whack a lawyer, there's going to be people looking for him. This for is sure. a guy, he's a public figure. He's in the eye of many different people in the courts, his clients, if, if he has family, which he does, you know, and etc. So that's a really good point. Um, so Jimmy, who has the gift to gab, he walks right up to Tuco, basically trying to beg for their lives. Then he transitions the conversation to justice, an eye for an eye type punishment. Hammurabi's code, punishment fit for the crime. Tuco, entertained by this idea, goes on a list of ridiculous thoughts, including the uh, Colombian necktie torture, uh, slit their tongues <laughs> and <laughs> yank them through their throats, or I skin them like javelinas. Um, Tuco has a great line to no-dose um, Jimmy Jimmy rather he's like uh, 
Or you could give them black eyes. And No Dose is like, uh, Holmes, they already got black eyes. Tuchel walks up to him and he's like, Stop helping. <laughs> so No Dose, of course, and Gonzo are both in Breaking Bad. Uh, we see the end to one of them in the uh, first season of Breaking Bad, Out in the Junkyard, which uh, we will talk about later. Tuco's a changed character by then. Um, but uh, so... Tuco and Jimmy are having this really interesting conversation. Again, there's a little bit of humor being brought into this. And uh, Jimmy's trying to tell him, you're the judge. You make the punishment fit for the crime. So they decide to break their legs. <laughs> is decided on as the punishment fit for the crime. Tuco shakes hands with Jimmy and the deal is done. And Tuco horrifically breaks one leg. Uh, they got two legs each, you know one leg each uh, on each brother pardon for my uh, terrible humor um and you see jimmy looking in horror he kind of can't help but watch as uh he sees what happens to the skateboarders who he had gotten into this mess and then we have a great sound transition from the sound of the boys screaming to the wheels of jimmy's old suzuki revving up to the hospital Jimmy has a great line where the one of the brothers had said you're one of the you're the worst lawyer in the world. Jimmy says, "I just talked you down from a death sentence to a six months probation. I'm the best lawyer." In response to what he had, uh, the brother had just said, both of the brothers are skirted into the hospital in wheelchairs with Jimmy pushing them, and that ends, in my opinion, one of the best and most intense scenes on the series. So. Alex, I'd, I'd like to ask you, this scene, which I just said, I'd argue it's probably my favorite in all of season one. It's very iconic through five seasons that have been on TV. As an audience, you had seen Breaking Bad, but what did you really think would happen to the three of them in the desert the first time you saw it? Obviously, Jimmy was going to make it out. What did you think was going to happen to the brothers and just how things would play out? Honestly, when I was in the moment... As much as I knew that Jimmy survives to Breaking Bad, such as a foregone conclusion, but there, there's still some anticipation, some nervousness from it. Like, I mean, you couldn't help but feel concerned for Jimmy in this very, like, horrible situation. Like, the suspense was definitely there. And what was going to happen to the two brothers? Like, Tuco, knowing him from Breaking Bad and seeing his character here... He seemed so volatile, is the best way to put it. Jimmy, the great scene of the negotiation. Tuco continuously got off topic, got distracted, but Jimmy the entire time, he could de-escalate a bomb at that point. And honestly, I think he did. Continuously just making some great points, appealing to Tuco's mother to try and get something. When that didn't work, he uh, told sort of appeal to his character saying that he's tough but he's fair and even more when that worked appealed to him as a judge he saw himself as a judge in order to uh, cast judgment upon the two of them and continuously before where we saw Tuco as a cold character here he was starting to get more and more excited when he was talking about the punishment he really got quite enthusiastic to say the least he was talking about as he said colombian neckties uh skinning the abuelitas there's so many absurd uh punishments he was thinking of and throughout it all jimmy's charisma just paid dividends and he managed to get them to that six-month probation. Not quite the way they wanted, for sure. You had just touched on what I was going to ask you. What does it say about Jimmy as a character based on his charisma and willingness to approach and negotiate with a man like Tuco? Because you see, as the camera suggests, Jimmy's thinking about it for a moment. Do I go back and help these guys, or do I get the hell out of here and just let the cartel have their way and obviously probably would have killed them uh, and left them out in the desert? What does it say about Jimmy's character to go up to almost a ticking time bomb and try and de-escalate the series or the seriousness? That is a great question, Joseph. Like honestly, 
As we saw with the prior episode, Jimmy is known to consort with some questionable characters, honestly. That's how he got himself into this mess of the scam in the first place. He consorts with people not looked uh, fondly upon by law, that's for sure. So he has some practice in this regard, but clearly not to the extent that he has himself in here. But as he's walking away, you put it rather perfectly, he has this sort of self-confliction within him, asking, like, do I just walk away or do I try and help them? And at a certain point, he sort of caves and knows that he has to help these two, despite how moronic they are. They're not worth dying, as he puts it in his own words. You talked about it when we first broke down this scene, but with the Breaking Bad callbacks to the desert being taken out in such a vast, empty space, tell me what you think of the symbolism of the desert as a whole. What does it mean? Why, if you're the cartel, why take them out there? If you're looking a bit deeper into it at first, it's almost like a judgment ground. But the main practical reason they brought them out there, obviously, the privacy that the vast expanse offers, no one is going to find them out there for both reasons, whether when they're doing it and everything afterwards. They will never find their bodies and they'll never see them committing the crime. It's honestly the perfect place which we see further down the line in Better Call Saul and in Breaking Bad. Joseph already said that it's used multiple times. And there is a reason because, honestly, the cartel, they do their entire business out there. I just said about uh, managing the characters that they no longer want in their lives, but with other type of business, it's just the privacy is perfect out there. We see Nacho really having to help save Jimmy in this scene. What does it say about Tuco's rationality as a character where it kind of seems like he's having a hard time distinguishing what Jimmy is saying, what to take at face value? Is he a lawyer? Is he really in the FBI? Clearly on Tuco's part, there's some paranoia of getting caught. These guys, they were doing heroin. Eventually, they're getting into crystal meth. What does it say about Tuco's character in, in at least a part of this scene where it doesn't seem like he can really trust what Jimmy is saying? He needs a third party. For sure. I think first I have to give credence to his actor for displaying all this that you can sort of read on the character's face. But he isn't quite fully comprehending everything Jimmy says. He falls quite easily for uh, the first thing he says about the FBI. As soon as it's mentioned, his paranoia, paranoia is fueled. His desire to see them as the pigs, as himself as right, more importantly, is catered towards. And he doesn't quite have... The, honestly, the critical thinking skills. I wouldn't quite call him a non-bright character. He has his moments at times, but obviously he's quite volatile, we see in this scene. Before, we saw him, saw him as quite cold and very calm considering the uh, situation. But here, he seems quite sporadic. At times, he's quite okay to let Jimmy walk away alive. But when it comes to his grandma being called a biznatch, he takes that personally. I don't know whether he's fully comprehending everything, but the look on his face at times when Jimmy speaks, it sort of shows that he understands the concept of what he's saying, but doesn't fully understand the implications behind said concept. Is the best way I would put it. Prime example, eye for an eye. He takes it. He understands the concept, but he takes it quite literally in uh, offering to blind both the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw that, I, I couldn't help but laugh. I'm not going to lie. Did you have any other thoughts in this very long scene in the episode that you wanted to discuss? Looking, having rewatched the episode, Nacho's handling of Tuco was quite brilliant, as you already said. He sort of knew how uh, Tuco would react. He seems quite enthusiastic when it comes to violence and later on in the scene when he's finally given the chance to actually snap their legs he's screaming in anticipation like his character fully comes to light and Nacho clearly uh, far more calculating and level-headed than Tuco is 
is quite adept at this point. He knows how to handle him. He takes him aside. He talks to him before he gets to that point. The end of that scene is so horrifically real from an auditory perspective. It's it's really it's 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 uncomfortable. The first time I saw that scene, I it was uncomfortable for me to watch. I smell I smell eyes. I smell pork. No, that's not necessary. We know you're with the heat. The question is who? Local? FBI? DEA? No, I'm a lawyer. Just reach in my pocket right now. Right there. I'm Special Agent Jeffrey Steele, FBI. FBI? FBI, I'm undercover, okay? You got me. I'm the tip of the spear, and releasing me would be the smart move. The task force is designated Operation Kingbreaker. Kingbreaker. So. That makes me the king! Woohoo! The next words out of your mouth ought to be the truth. You only see the FBI hiring those two fraquitos. They disrespected Mama Pulita. They call her Bisnatch! And they just walk! Ah! I see it, that's because you're tough, but you're fair. You're all about justice. That's what I'm saying. Justice. Now you have to decide what's the right sentence. Like a judge. Like a judge. You ever hear of the Code of Hammurabi? Let the punishment fit the crime, eye for an eye? Punishment fit the crime. Colombian neckties. I cut their throats and then I pull their long tongues through the slits. Bishnatch! That one there, Holmes, you already got a black eye, fool. Stop. Help. Let's break nothing, bitch. I'm gonna break their arms. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna break their legs. Break their legs. How many legs? Two, they got two legs. One leg. Each one leg, each. Check it out. I'm gonna do this one real clean. Walk on now, bitch. Hey, I just talked you down from a death sentence and six months probation. I'm the best lawyer ever. That was a very iconic scene. Um, for some stark contrast, we are going to move into a very glitzy bar where we start off the next scene with an extreme close-up of cherry red lips caressing a fancy alcoholic drink with an umbrella in it. Uh, Jimmy is on a date with a woman. Uh, uh, out in a bar maybe he met her there we're not really sure um, after looking over the woman he draws attention to a man down at the bar breaking breadsticks over the counter over and over and over again now this action clearly bothers Jimmy and one must think it reminds him of the torture Tuco put the two skateboarders through in the desert with the metaphor of the breadsticks being the legs for some pretty graphic imagery. And this is still all the same day. Can you imagine you're out in the desert, you're tied up, gagged, and you have to beg for your life. Now you're at the bar in the evening, had some supper, now you're out on a date. I couldn't imagine that for a whole day. I uh, aptly put it, by the way, uh, the analogy with the breadsticks and the legs, of course, is quite well done. But having rewatched the scene, it does put it into perspective. Exactly as you said, right after all that happened, that very same night, he's out on a date. And as the music beautifully plays, he seems quite charismatic. And as I would put it, he's in the mood, right? He's go going with the flow. He's, uh, he's at his prime with uh, how charming he is. He's constantly getting drinks with the waiter. He's talking with her, keeping her laughing. But halfway through, of course, he gets distracted by the breadsticks. And you can sort of see him slipping away from that to 
facing the realization of what he had to deal, deal with in the desert. So the song in this part of the scene is Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Juan Garcia Esquivel. It's a piano vocal jazz feature uh, with some Spanish flair. It's not related to the Green Day track. It's funky. It's kind of weird, as I said, and it helps makes this. It helps makes the scene as. I mean, to Alex's point, Jimmy's trying to have a good time. He can't, based on what happened to him earlier during the day. Exactly. I, I love this scene. There is a lot of attention to the color red, which I wanted to bring up. The woman's red lips, red fingernails, the cherry, the maraschino cherry in the drink. And I wanted to get your thoughts before we finish this. Is this a reference to blood? No, it's obviously a callback to Sasa, of course. <laughs> but uh, knowing the best way to take it out is... Um... I really wasn't sure. I was curious to hear your thoughts why all the symbolism on red is put in this scene. Is it is it setting the mood for violence from what Jimmy had saw earlier? I think so. With the combination of the breadsticks, it's the most logical uh, conclusion from that, for sure. They are trying to draw our attention to it, which you might not pick up on the first time watching through. You might just be more interested in what Jimmy's doing at the bar, if he's going to hook up with this woman or what's going to happen. But uh, So the song then in the end of the segment kind of turns to mush as Jimmy runs to the bathroom to hurl in the toilet. And, you know, this it's based on his harrowing experience, as we've mentioned a few times now. Just some hours before, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough for Jimmy and... Arguably, he put himself in this situation. So we see, continuing on, Chuck is in his house, ironing. Jimmy, in what could be a drunken stupor, crashes on Chuck's couch. Chuck is scared that Jimmy didn't ground himself upon entry to the house, uh, grounding by removal of electro electronic devices, rather, in Chuck's mailbox. Chuck finds Jimmy's cell phone hastily with what looks like salad tongs, tosses the phone out on the lawn outside. Now, an interesting detail that I didn't pick up on the first time around, Chuck sees the medical bill that Jimmy is dealt with from the skateboarders and from the hospital. Um, and he's obviously he's going to look at it. The next morning, Jimmy wakes up. Chuck is sitting comfortable in a space blanket. Uh, Alex, do you want to, for our viewers, kind of just describe what a space blanket is? is it's a blanket heavy coated blanket i would say with uh almost an aluminum mesh on the outside while providing quite warm comfort i'm sure but it the thing is it looks absolutely ridiculous and while it would be quite practical in space it clearly shows that chuck isn't uh the same as a normal person he clearly has something going on if he's consorting to a space blanket instead of something else right he's not handling this condition of that he has well exactly um they have a they have a chat about the medical bill um jimmy's trying to reassure chuck that you know things are okay on his end with that shouldn't be worried this isn't slipping jimmy uh and so jimmy you know he keeps asking chuck to take off the blanket take it off take it off he finally does to me, this kind of looked like a bug emerging from a cocoon, to me at least, as he takes off the aluminum foil. And, you know, funny enough to the audience, um, some irony here, as Jimmy leaves, Jimmy doesn't know, but we see Chuck wrap himself up in the blanket once again. Now Jimmy, back at the county court, um, he's offering a stuffed kitty, a stuffed animal, to the receptionist who has clearly quite the collection, as seen in the room behind her desk. Jimmy does this, you know, basically as a bribe. It's to get cases and work his way, sometimes information as well. Um, and he goes to the bathroom, and after looking himself in the mirror, he says the classic Beetlejuice line is Alex delivered for us from Michael Keaton's it's Beetlejuice. Showtime. It's showtime, folks. And one of my favorite sequences, again, this is a great episode, that is on next. Alex, did you have any thoughts on, before we talk about this montage, just kind of Jimmy showing up at Chuck's house, kind of in a drunken state? Oh, for sure. Hilariously missed out of the part where, as he came in his drunken stupor, he took off his pants right in front of his brother before crashing on the couch, <laughs> leaving him to go through it to pick up the cell phone, make sure that 
all his personal belongings are grounded. Uh, you talked briefly about the fact that he mentioned he wasn't going sliding down back into Slipping Jimmy. At this point, is this the first time it's mentioned, Slippy J Slipping Jimmy? He talks about it in the first episode with the skateboarders at the skate park. He's talking about his past as Slipping Jimmy. Mm. The audience might not know right away he's referring about his time in Cicero, but this is something that's going to get mentioned almost every episode, at least in the first season, it seems like. For sure, and it seems quite clear that he's wants to be rather convincing that he's not consorting that to his brother. Clearly, he doesn't want his brother to think of him in that manner. Trouble is for Jimmy, as we find later in the series, is Chuck doesn't forget much. No. Chuck has an astute memory, and as we'll see, Chuck has a tendency of only looking through one lens at his brother. Yeah. He's not of perfect mind, in my opinion, Chuck anyways, but he is, needless to say, a very intelligent man. And very observant is the best way to put it. As soon as he saw that bill, he rather quite well, they uh, focused in on the details going slowly down the page. And he could see that it was clearly for injuries, not that Jimmy was suffering. So whether judgment was already cast at that point for Chuck's character, I wouldn't put it past him. But as a first-time viewer, I'm sure this wouldn't be something you'd think about. I think the thing I find astounding is that, keep in mind in the first episode, as you talked about, Jimmy tears up a check for $26,000. Where, all of a sudden, Jimmy, a man who we said in the beginning is clearly not doing too well financially, where is he going to get the money to take care of these skateboarders, you know? You run into injuries, you know, medical practices in the States are different from how we do things in Canada. It's different. You know, you go to a hospital, you're going to get a bill. It's it's rather interesting how, you know, one, one could think Jimmy could go into some deep debt just from what happened out in the desert. It's funny because I think that ties it perfectly into the next scene you start talking about when Lady asks him, what do you want at the counter? And he says not to starve to death. I think that perfectly answers your question there. So working as a working as a public defender, Jimmy, you know, he's going to do what he does best. We get a great sequence of close-ups of the coffee machine dispensing coffee. Jimmy meeting all sorts of scummy low-life clients, rehearsing lines in the bathroom, arguing with the opposing counsel over sentencing, and heading out to the parking lot to be denied by our favorite Mike Ermintrot. For not having enough stickers for parking validation. It really is, to me at least, a day in the life for Jimmy. This happens to him a lot. He de deals with the same kinds of people. At one point, he sees Kim walking down the hallway. Kim Wexler smiles back at him. At this point, Kim and Jimmy are just friends. Things are, you know, so on and so on. There's a great line from Jimmy to Mike. You're like a troll under a bridge. You don't have enough stickers to pass. Troll alert here. Don't feed it. <laughs> And also the song choice, it's uh, Concerto for Strings in G Major, um, Concerto alla Rustica, uh, Presto by the Vivaldi String Orchestra. It's a great choice. It's classical music. It really fits in with this repeating montage of a day. And the string section of the orchestra, it really just kind of amplifies, you know, quick actions, going from one courtroom to the other, quickly having a coffee. Uh, it's not the glam life for Jimmy at this point. And... Unfortunately, he, he'll make some money, but he's doing this to pay his bills and just get through what he can, you know, what he can do. Well put, Joseph. I think uh, your thought on the music is on point. Uh, it does show and rapidly he's going through the routine. This isn't exactly what he wants to do, but the shot from scene to scene showing the repeat of the coffee, the clients, the staircase... He was a prior from the prosecutor and, of course, the troll under the bridge, which you mentioned. It all shows that time is fastly uh, going by, and he's slowly getting his checks. He doesn't seem greatly impressed, to be honest, when he gets it every time, but he is surviving to a degree. And the way I see it, too, is this whole hostage situation and the scam gone wrong, it took up a lot of Jimmy's time. 
this isn't somebody who can just go and take a few days off and get caught into a, a big mess and then, you know, yeah, he's got to get back at the grind. For sure. And uh, one more thing about the music, uh, despite the fact that it pr shows that the time is passing quite rapidly, I think also because of its rather classical nature, it's contrast to the suspense that we held before. We're almost holding our breath as the scene in the desert and everything before transpired. Whereas here we can almost breathe as classical music plays. He's back into his routine. It's not glamorous, but at least here he's safe and he's going through the motions, which he needs to do. He's almost scared straight, I would say, after the scenes prior. It kind of almost puts him like like check in line. like For sure. Set him straight, honestly. Get your act together, yeah. That's a very good point, Alex. So we see back in Jimmy's office as this montage comes to a close. He's back at the nail salon, and Jimmy's getting ready to sleep on his fold-out couch or just relax with a drink. And just as he lies down, Mrs. Nguyen, the... Uh, a nail salon owner tells me as a customer which is you know for a guy like jimmy this is a big deal he doesn't deal with a lot of clients who come directly to him he's always chasing the work so there's a great uh string of aerial shots uh it's just basically one shot i'm referring to but it's looking directly from above at jimmy which to me it really makes him feel small in his tiny office which i want to talk to you about just a little bit later it's basically his home at this point. Like, let's think about that for a moment. Um, so Nacho arrives at the door uh, and greets Jimmy as the surprise customer, basically. Um, going into that moment of that episode, I kind of thought it was going to be somebody who we'd already seen. Um, and Nacho jokes about Tuco freaking him out. And uh, to cut to the chase, Nacho is interested in the $1.6 million. The Kettleman's allegedly embezzled from the treasury. Nacho offers to steal the money uh, from them and give Jimmy a finder's fee of what actually would be over $100,000, uh, which is really something when you think about it. Jimmy, as a bit of a hypocrite, says, look, I'm a lawyer, not a criminal. Hmm. That's a really great line from Bob Odenkirk delivers. To Nacho's amusement, Nacho basically says... Uh, how much Jimmy should be grateful for him getting in the way between him and Tuco as that third party. He basically helped save Jimmy's life. At least I would kind of argue. For sure. To conclude this scene, we have a great line from Nacho where he kind of says, for when you figure out you're in the game, he gives Jimmy his phone number on the matchbook. He then walks out of the salon, which brings the end to a great two-part episode. Chuck, listen, I I know how this looks. I'm down to my last dime and suddenly I'm paying for broken legs, but it's it's not that. I swear. Okay. I'm not backsliding. This isn't slipping Jimmy. Fine. Take off the space blanket, Chuck. Come on. Take off the blanket. What do you want? Not to starve to death. What do you say? Got something for me? It's showtime, folks. That lady up there, she shorts me every time, okay? This is not a me problem. This is a you problem. I know how to find you, James McGill. Understand what I'm saying? We rip him off. Easy money. Hey, look, I'm a lawyer, not a criminal. <laughs> For when you figure out you're in the game. I'm not in the game. I, 
I promise. So, Alex, again, much like uh, the third scene, this is a really long scene. There's a lot we could discuss. I'll have to say, um, what are you, what were your thoughts if we backtrack a little bit after Jimmy's at the bar? What are your thoughts on the simple discussion between Chuck and Jimmy over the skateboarder's medical bill? Do you think Chuck believes Jimmy that he's got things under control? I know we had just talked about it earlier. But did you have any more thoughts on what Chuck might be thinking of his brother at this point? The first time I watched this, honestly, I if you were to ask me that question, I would not think much of it. And would honestly say he didn't, Chuck wouldn't have picked up much either. He seemed very calm with his brother. But having rewatched it again, I would say for sure, immediately cast a judgment upon him. And his mind was already decided up the moment he saw the bill. The moment he saw that there was payments for injuries, which was clearly not Jimmy's, was clearly in Chuck's eyes related to some sort of scam he was pulling. I'm sure that's what he thought. He already cast his judgment. He has already decided at that point there. What, what were your thoughts on Jimmy's life in the day of a public defender montage? Just, you know, we see some of the monotonous stuff he has to deal with, the repetition, some of the scummy clients he's dealing with. What did you make of all that? Does that seem realistic to you as Jimmy's kind of a lower-level lawyer at this point? Yeah, I think there's some, obviously, exaggerated moments, but for sure. And I just want to state one thing. Uh, some of these scenes, these montages of his daily routine in the courthouse, I think they're some of the best, honestly, uh, scenes in the entire series. Not for its... St- uh, stark standout moments but just for some of its humor and just how well they're done with the music syncing with the patterns of the shots for sure I would agree with you. but when it comes to Jimmy's job himself like he does very well as seen previously in the desert in the court uh, session last episode we see he is actually quite really good at his job we see here that he coaches some of his clients. One guy claims from wanting to kill the person to never wanting to do it again in front of the judge. He coaches these people. He tries to plead with the prosecution. He gives them clothes in the case of that suits a loner. Yeah, uh, as well as the uh, belt and everything. He does care about his clients. He is willing to pick up almost any case. But as we've seen before, he does have a moral compass, for sure. And here we see that he is a good lawyer, despite the fact he's dealing with very low-level cases, as you alluded to. And as a result, rather low compensation that we can see from his reactions every time he gets a check. It's tough. It's tough for somebody like him to get ahead. Yes. And as we move uh, further into Season 1, Jimmy's doing the same stuff quite often. So at some point... Man, you know, it's got to come into some kind of break so that he can make a little bit more money. I'm not going to, we're not going to go that far in today's episode's discussion, but uh, you'll see as we move through. And if you're watching the show for a first time, definitely. Let me ask you, what do you make of Nacho's offer to Jimmy at the end of the episode? Do you think, even if Jimmy's initial reaction is kind of dismissive, do you think it entices him a little bit, that idea of a finder's fee, kind of like, hey, this is $100,000. There's a lot you can do with a hundred grand. Having, on the first time I watched the episode, I would almost equate it to the same reaction of him ripping up the check as last episode, the $26,000. However, rewatching it this time, I would say he's sorely tempted by that offer, honestly. And as you said before, he is acting a little bit as a hypocrite. He's already been involved in scam, which we talked about. He's clearly on the wrong side of the law in some regards, but he's not wanting to go into the game as Nacho. There's a great reference. It's not direct, but you could almost make it indirectly. Um, When Jimmy says, I'm a lawyer, not a criminal... Very first time we meet Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, Walt and Jesse are sitting in um, the station wagon in in the parking lot for Saul's office, and uh, 
Jesse's basically, Jesse sets up the meeting. Jesse says to Walt, you want a criminal lawyer, you know, so that's uh, getting further, quite a bit further down the line, but it's a nice little foreshadowing moment, I think. Um, you had just touched on it. That final line from Nacho in the episode, we hear it a lot throughout both series. This idea of being in the game. He's a bald gringo. He's in the game. We hear Lalo talking about it with uh, Nacho in Season 5. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. But uh, what, what do you think of that whole idea of being in the game? Once you're in, you're in. Let me ask you, from this very first two-part episode, is Jimmy albeit indirectly, already in the game with the cartel? I think he has part of his pinky toe in the game. He's not fully established whatsoever. He's interacted with them. He's delved slightly, but I wouldn't say he's in the game, despite Nacho's words. I think he, with his past, he is sorely tempted with that offer to be involved to a degree. But having been scared straight, and in my opinion... He doesn't have that same stark uh, morality when it comes to his brother in refusing the offer with the check last episode. Here he is a bit tempted, but still, having been scared straight, he doesn't want any involvement with the people that almost got him killed. I think it's very interesting because, as we mentioned, Nacho is now going to become a series regular. Michael Mando does an excellent job playing his character. So Nacho's not going away. So, for me... It kind of almost seems like, yeah, Jimmy is indirectly involved just by having this showdown in the desert. He's met two of the most prolific people, part of that, uh, the Salamanca group. It's part of the cartel. Jimmy doesn't know it yet. You know, when Nacho and Tuco are interrogating him, Jimmy can't definely say what drugs uh, they're peddling across the border. He doesn't know, but already, you know, Jimmy's not going to forget about that, and it's going to become much more prevalent later on as he is going to be dealing with Nacho. Uh, that's not going away. Um, spoilers if you haven't seen the show before, but I think a lot of people have seen the first season. Um, let me ask you this, Alex. How does this episode add on from the first episode? What did it, what did it add to the series premiere? Did you like it? Uh, it was one of my favorite episodes of the season, I think. For sure. I think it really starts to establish Jimmy as a character. He's someone that you can root for, for sure. And it establishes the universe as well. You have one side of the law. You have H&M. You have Chuck, uh, Chuck, his brother. You have Kim. You have all these different characters. And the very stark opposite, you have involvement with Tuco, Nacho, some of the cartel's most prominent members and it starts to feel more and more realistic jimmy has his place in this universe and he interacts with all these different characters despite uh you talked briefly a bit about uh his room and how he feels so small inside of it despite that he is a character that interacts with all these people he has his role he is a cog in the machine I think what you just talked about is very important. As I just mentioned a few minutes ago, I can't imagine being in that situation Jimmy would be in where we're basically saying his very tiny office, um, which is a lot smaller than where we're recording from, for example, I couldn't imagine that also being his home. You know, that fold-out couch, that bed, you know, his desk, uh, that's all he has, really. For sure, and this ties nicely into the question you asked before about how can he pay for this medical bill that he faced before. In truth, despite all the work that he's doing, he's still going back to this tiny uh, office in the back of the salon. He has what appears to almost be his bed in the futon. He get, grabs himself a drink after all that moving around, and finally when he, when he relaxes... Nacho comes in, only for him to have to move everything back. He clearly puts in the effort, but is not established in any way, shape, or form compared to his brother, who has a very nice home, or some of the other more prominent members that we'll see later on. But despite the fact that he is quite small, he sticks to his morals, honestly. Ain't no rest for the wicked. No. You know, I'm not saying Jimmy 
is wicked entirely in the beginning, but uh, I think, I mean, I loved this episode. I think my biggest takeaway, as I had said, Better Call Saul was the first of the two shows that I had watched. I think the first two episodes do a really great job of establishing a very, like a likability to Jimmy's character. Look what this guy just did. Yes, he put the skateboarders and himself in that position. It was his idea to try and scam the Kettlemans. Obviously, that was nowhere near close to happening. But then when you look at Jimmy's charisma, he can talk himself out of any situation, which is a very, very powerful and useful and really good trait to have as a as a skilled lawyer. And as Alex and I were discussing before we were doing tonight's episode, you think about the average lawyer, or you take people that be working at HH&M in this fictional world, how many of those lawyers would be able to do that same job and survive out in the desert? I don't think very many. For sure. No, I would agree. Like, uh, who from H&M would have the stomach in order to stand up and help those two brothers in the face of Tuco, like and his violence, like not many people would have stomach for that. And speaking of which you talked about his character, was there any other characters that stood out for you that resonated with you uh, in the first two episodes? Any ones that left an impression on you? I, I really wanted to see more of Raymond Cruz uh, playing Tuco. We do see him later on in the series, uh, and I'm hopeful that he will return once more, perhaps in the final season of Better Call Saul. We'll see. He does a great job playing that character. Michael Mando, again, as Nacho, brings another element to the show. Uh, his character is not in Breaking Bad, but there is a reference to him. Um, we don't get a whole lot from Mike. Mike is still kind of this gruff old man basically just a parking attendant at this point we'll be talking about him more as we uh go into the next episode i believe he is a great source of humor if nothing else he is uh and then chuck we don't get as many lines from uh michael mckean's character this time around but uh we do get a very you know we get a better sense that this is a man who needs some help uh mentally it seems like with the whole space blanket um there's there's two sides to Chuck. There's the Chuck who's suffering from his condition. Um, and then there's the Chuck where he's sitting quietly in his chair, listening to Jimmy basically saying, Look, Chuck, I ain't slipping Jimmy. Uh, this medical bill, like, don't worry about it. But you know, in the back of your mind, Chuck already has his own preconceptions about Jimmy. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. Even, yeah. even without passing judgment to the audience... You can know that he's he's thinking about his brother probably in a negative light. For sure, I think that's a very good perspective on Chuck, honestly. And he's especially one of the characters I'm keeping an eye out for, having watched the show already, and seeing the first couple episodes again. His character, there's so much more context to absorb than the first time I watched. For sure, I didn't quite pick up on as many small details about Chuck as you would having rewatched it. That's a good point, Alex. I mean, spoiler alert, but really the first three seasons of Better Call Saul, the relationship between Chuck and Jimmy, in my opinion, I think is the most important that drives the show forward. Yeah, it's a really important dynamic for sure. Chuck's at home. He's not practicing law at the moment, where Jimmy, on the other hand, he's out there. But uh, in, in in his spare time, in his little spare times, clearly as he needs to work quite a bit, he's taking care of a brother who's not entirely caring. He he is to a degree. Chuck would rather see Jimmy do something else, but I, we won't go that far in our discussion. But uh, I love tonight's episode. Um, I'm really excited to keep bringing you guys this series. Uh, the truth is how you look at it. This was Miho. And uh, Alex, thank you for joining me tonight. As always. Yeah. Did you have any more thoughts before we uh, wrap up our second discussion? No, Joseph. I think we touched upon everything there perfectly. For Alex and I, this is uh, Joseph Bernacki signing off for the second episode of The Truth is How You Look at It. We're recording from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and we're excited to bring you some more weekly content on our podcast. You can check us out on Anchor. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, 
uh, YouTube as well as a few others. And uh, yeah, we're excited to bring you this series. And thank you guys for tuning in for the week of January 30th, 2021. Till next episode, guys. Take it easy. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast. Our show's theme is The House, recorded by Adrian Berenger, and music featured in tonight's show was In the Shadows, recorded by Bruce Zimmerman, Excavate by Marshall Usinger, and A Place Beyond Belief by Sander Kalmeyer. If you're new to Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, now is a great time to check out these television series. Until next week, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll catch you all on the flip side. The Truth is How You Look at It is a Bernanke and Krauss production.